Hello and welcome to Suvion, the Cambridge podcast from St John's College. I'm Heather Hancock, Master of St John's and host of the podcast that brings you stories from our community to intrigue, inform and inspire. First up, meet Anne-Marie Phelps, who applied to Cambridge as a bet, got her place, tried rowing at St John's and ended up representing Great Britain in the Olympics. She talks about dinner table debates, being bloody-minded and the power of sport to transform lives. Well, Anna-Marie, it's such a pleasure for me to welcome you back to college. I know you're, you're frequently back here. Um, I also know that you firmly believe in the power of sport to transform lives and, and to change the world. So I'm really looking forward to exploring with you in this conversation how sport and hopefully the college might have transformed your life. And I thought we'd begin right at the beginning. Tell us a bit about where you grew up and about your family. Well, my family are all Irish. My parents came to London in 1965, so the year before I was born, and lived in Wembley. And I grew up first in Neasden and then in Watford and Bushy in Hertfordshire. So very much around that sort of quarter of the, the London clock, as it were, and have stayed in that sort of part of the world, I guess. But we would frequently go back to Ireland and the sort of Celtic heritage and history and way of life, I suppose, was always really important to us growing up. So everyone sitting down for dinner together and family all being together was really incredibly important. The woman you are today really shaped by that family experience. I guess so, yes. I mean, certainly the ability to want to debate things at the dinner table, which which I think is a real Irish trait. You never stand up and have fallen out with each other, but you always sit down and there's always something to discuss and to talk about. And I think, you know, my grandmother was a huge influence on me. And really, her story and the story of the family have always been really important. Especially, I think, if, you, if you're a second generation away from things, you kind of look back, don't you, at what would it have been like, actually, if, if I'd grown up over there? Yeah, it's so much fresher, isn't it, and more real? I can't, yes, absolutely. So how did they feel when you applied to go to Cambridge? Was that something absolutely expected in your family or a bolt from the blue? My parents and my grandmother and, and grandfather actually were always... Um, very ambitious, and, and I suppose I was always very ambitious growing up. I really applied to Cambridge almost as part of a sort of, not quite a joke, but a bet. I had a bet with a girl at school who was called Sarah Delaney, who sadly I've lost contact with. But one day, marching up the stairs, she said, I think I'm going to go to Oxford. What do you think? And I said, well, if you can go to Oxford, I can go to Cambridge. And so we then spent most of our sixth form sort of talking about this, much to the sort of disdain of our teachers and teaching staff at school and particularly my headmistress who was absolutely appalled at the idea not only that I might think of going to Cambridge but that I wanted to go to a college that was a mixed college. So why did you want to come to St John's? This is so interesting. So my geography teacher was at John's and geography was the subject that I really enjoyed and it was also a subject I, I was slightly bloody minded at school so for my A-levels, I decided I wanted to do economics, geography and maths and art. So I've always had an amazing sort of like longing and love of art. And my maths teacher and I didn't get on at all. And, and she said, well, you, you can't do maths A-level because actually I don't think you're good enough for it. 
but also it will clash on the timetable. You won't be able to do both. <laughs> and my geography teacher looked at me and he said, do you know what? We'll sort this out. You can do the upper sixth curriculum in your lower sixth. We can swap the years round, which we did. And he took over from a teacher who left and he realised that the upper six that I was going in with had been so poorly taught that he had to do the whole curriculum in two terms. And when we got to the end of the two terms, he said, given you've done the whole curriculum, why don't you just try and do the A-level and see how you get on? And, and he was, he was a wonderful teacher. I did my A-level geography at the end of my first year of sixth form and did all right-ish and then went on to do S-level the following year and he took us to Oxford to visit a couple of colleges, an old one and a new one. And then he took us to Cambridge to visit an old one and a new one. So we visited Churchill and John's. And it wasn't really till after we'd been to all four that he then said he had been at John's and that's why he'd chosen John's. And I just loved it. You know, when you, you walk into a house, when you're going to buy a house, you walk into you think, this is where I could be. And I walked in and for some reason felt, this really feels like somewhere I want to grow up in. It's lovely you say that because one of the things we we say now to to every year of freshers, and I really feel this so strongly, is you just belong. There's nothing else you have to do. You just walk in through the gate and you belong here and you make it your own in whatever way you want to make it your own. But I think you're right. It has such a friendly, welcoming atmosphere for something that's kind of quite austere in some ways, these amazing buildings and these empty courts and the kind of the history that hangs over it it's incredible that it can still create that feeling isn't it of, of warmth and belonging yes and and it is the people but also it is the way it looks I mean you say it's austere I, I think it's just really beautiful I mean it's, each of the courtyards has got its own character that reflects the time in which it was yeah. built and the people that built it and you know and, and we had those amazing first few days and weeks when we came in as freshers and I remember that the matriculation dinner so well with Harry Hinsley. Yeah. Well, if anyone's listening to this and doesn't know, the reason Anne Marie's saying when we went to the matriculation dinner is special to me is because we were both at that dinner together. We both came in 1984 to read geography. If I'd known, Anne Marie, that you'd taken your geography A level in your lower six, I'd have been even more intimidated about arriving at St John's. So thank you for keeping that secret <laughs> until now. But yeah, the matriculation dinner, I mean, so memorable, wasn't it? It was. It was fantastic. Harry Hinsley's talk to us about once a Jonian, always being a Jonian, these walls are your walls. Whether or not it was what he said that stuck with me all these years or whether it was just part of the whole culture of the college, but I certainly, I, I still get a thrill every time I come back here and it's just lovely to, to be able to come back and to still feel very much part of the college. Students today ask me, oh, what was it like in your day? By which they actually mean the olden days. And I don't mind that because it does look like that to them. And I largely say to them, just about the same, really. I mean, of course, some things are different and renewed and modernised, etc. But really, in essentials, it's just the same experience, which is possibly goes to the kind of the, the value of collegiality and how you sustain it. So you chose geography, inspired by a teacher, love of geography. When you finished John's, where do you think it was going to take you? So there's a slight side story to it. I was pretty determined that I had to get into Cambridge. My backup plan was to do a foundation course in art, in art. and in some ways, I would have quite liked to have deferred my entrance to Cambridge and done my foundation course and then still come back. And in those days, we had local authority grants and, and I had a full local authority grant. And the local authority said, you can't possibly do that. We're not going to pay for you to do a foundation art course and then swan about and go up to Cambridge. 
And to be fair, I think I slightly bloody-mindedly said, well, that's it, in which case I'm going to go to St Albans College of Art and do my art foundation course. And my parents rightly said, you are not. We will drag you kicking and screaming up to your college at Cambridge. So I I came up, I I had a boyfriend down in London at that time and felt that, you know, St Albans was going to be closer to him. But my parents dragged me up here. Well, they didn't drag me, but... Um, I came up and I I walked in and I was, you know, it was fantastic from day one. Now, I don't remember, as a geography fresher, you spending much time on the river in those early days. So what got you out there? Oh, do you know this story already? I wonder. So I, I didn't. In my first term, I spent most of the time probably in the college bar, but certainly being very sociable and having tea and meeting people and going to lectures And by the end of the year, I had discovered that actually doing sport was a really important part of social life at the college. And I hadn't done much sport at school. In fact, my headmistress, the same one that didn't want me to come to Cambridge, used to say that ladies didn't do sport and we didn't cheer and clap. And when we did sport, we had to wear glow shirts because um, horses sweat and men perspire and ladies glow. So we weren't allowed sweatshirts, we wore glow shirts. So sport wasn't something we did at school. We set up the first women's football team here and it was, I think I was recruited in the bar the night before to be in goal. And we played St Catharines in the first match and we lost 2-0. I was in goal. They had two shots on goal and one of them went through my legs and the other one I just froze to the spot. But I did play a bit of football and, and I had a lovely, lovely year. Didn't do very well in my exams at the end of the year. And so the then Dr. Glasscock, um, who then went on to be, I think, Professor Glasscock, took me aside at the end of the year before I went down for the summer and said, you know, you need to pull your socks up. Otherwise, you're not going to make it through another year. And I suggest you focus on two things, your studies and maybe choose one sport. And he said, why don't you just choose a new sport and start it again? So I recommend you take yourself off to the river and go and learn to row. And so I dutifully, as a dutiful student, trotted off down to the river at the beginning of my second year and took up rowing. Now, someone must have spotted your promise really early on, as soon as you were kind of down there at at Maggie, which is the name of our boat club. So who was it and who kind of spotted that early talent and helped you progress? Because you were in the university race before we knew it. Uh, Well, you know, no, not necessarily. So I was definitely second boat material. I was second novice boat and then the second eight for the lengths that year. And then I made it into the first four. The thing that I discovered was actually I have quite a good physiology for a a sport like rowing. So really good VO2 max and lung capacity, which obviously helped me. I was quite strong, even if my technique was awful. So I would, generally speaking, make the boat go fast. Uh, Hilary Tunnicliffe used to come down and, and coach us occasionally, and she was great. Hilary was somebody who appreciated power and, and wasn't too worried about the technique as long as you made the boat move. So that was good. Um, and then in my third year, I trialled for Cambridge University Women's Boat Club, as it was then. And I got dropped relatively early on, actually. Uh, and then when they named the final cruise, and there were a few people who were put into the reserve boat, into Blondie, who decided they didn't want to be in the reserve boat because they'd either thought they were better or they'd been in the blue boat the previous year, and they dropped out. And Roger, I think, just looked around the boathouse and went, you, you'll do. You're in the three-seat. 
So I rode for Blondie in 1987 and we won. And then we went on to get our blades uh, in the maze again in 87. And when I came down to London, it was really Judith Slater, who I had rowed with at, at Lady Margaret, who persuaded me to carry on rowing in London. And from then on, I ended up doing trials for the national team and things. Now, rowing is a, a, a sport in which I mean, you have to have a career as well as rowing. You know, not many people earn their living from, from rowing. So what were you doing? How were you, how were you making a living in those early stages? I finally got into the art world. <laughs> I took my CV up and down Bond Street and got a job working in an auction house initially. Um, it wasn't much of a living. It was, the pay was quite low, but I, I'd always wanted to work in art. So it was my dream job. So I, I worked there and then I worked for a dealer in Kensington Church Street. Um, and he was amazing, fabulous, because he really was a one-man band. He specialised in 19th century architect-designed objects, British architect-designed objects, so quite sort of niche thing. But I, I found that actually my geography and my historical geography, the, the stuff that I'd particularly done, was really helpful in terms of understanding of society and of urban life and, and things like that from the Victorian period. So that the research part of what we've done here as, as geographers really helped in terms of trying to, to understand how and why these objects were being made and, and where they went to and things like that. Rowing carried on and you ended up representing Great Britain in five world championships and then going to the 1996 uh, Olympic Games. That must have been the most incredible sort of wave of immense effort and commitment and dedication, but also really exhilarating, wasn't it? I mean, what stands out in all of that journey? Oh, my goodness. Um, I, I suppose, you know, the fact that every year was different, although it's the same rhythm. I mean, maybe it's a bit like being in college. You know, it's the same rhythm every year. You have the same sort of events that happen every year, but every year is different mm. because you're different, because your experience is different and it's growing, because physically you're, you're changing or you have a different coach or whatever. So each year there was something very special about it. And, and even... In those first four years when we medalled at World Championships, you know, the first year winning a silver was just incredible. You know, it was so unexpected. I, I remember sitting on the start line thinking, here I am. I can't believe I'm on the final of a World Championship. And the worst I can do is come sixth in the world. So, hey, no pressure. And of course, by the following year, getting a silver again, I, I felt, you know, completely different and really very disappointed and thinking, oh, I'd really hoped that we might go one better so you know each year was very different and each year the crew would slightly change and, and there'd be a different dynamic and different people and and, and we travel to different places each year and each course was different so there was always something to keep you going and and keep that excitement and and the ultimate really for anybody in a, in a sport like rowing is is to compete at the olympic games so that really was you know I wouldn't say it was the pinnacle of my career um, because I think winning a world championships was, but but actually going to the Olympic Games and being part of that global festival of, of sport was quite an incredible experience. And to be an Olympian, I mean, just to to have that designation, it's such an endorsement. Once an Olympian, always an Olympian, <laughs> like being a Jonian. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have many Jonian Olympians, though, so you're in a very, very special category for us. How do you step away from competing at that elite level? It must be incredibly hard to sort of wrench yourself away from it. It, it was, but the last year, a couple of years had been quite difficult. I'd had a couple of injuries. Um, I had overtraining syndrome over one winter and had treatment for that. Um, and I, and I, I'd had a bit of a funny relationship with with some other people within the sport 
So, you know, it, sort of culturally, there were things that I didn't particularly like around a, a particular group of, of women. And and I think I got to the end of 96. We didn't achieve what we'd wanted to achieve, um, came seventh at, at the Games. And I think we really hoped that we might come at least fourth or so or been on the edge of a sort of bronze medal. And by then I was working for a company called the Fine Arts Society on Bond Street part-time. And they offered me a, a full-time role and a place on the board as a director of the company. And it was one of the oldest art galleries mm. um, on Bond Street, very prestigious. Um, they wanted me to head up the decorative arts department. And so it was a sort of no-brainer. And, and there was no funding for sport. We have to remember, 96 was pre-national lottery um, coming in, thanks to John Major. That transformed the following year. But, you know, I, I'd spent all of those years. I was, I was 30 you know, I hadn't really ever earned any money, I had a proper career and just sort of made do all the way along. And I just felt it was time to put my... And it's always better to own that decision, isn't it? Yeah. Rather than to sort of have someone else tap you on the shoulder and encourage you to make it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. You know, it was, it was a tough decision, but, it, but actually it was the right one for me at the time. And I don't regret it. I found it really hard watching the women I'd rowed with carry on rowing and then particularly once funding came in, having the success having that, that they success. had. Yeah. But, and until they had all gone through the system and, you know, I really, I did find it quite tough. I can't say I was sort of joyous when they started all winning medals every year at World Championships, but it, it took a long time before we, we won the first Olympic medal. Yeah, it did, didn't it? But of course, you really quickly did that brilliant sort of move that, that not many sports people at an elite level make so effectively. But you moved on to the kind of governance side. I think you st you started being an athlete rep, didn't you, at, to start with, and then progressed in, in British rowing. So tell us a little bit about that, the, the way that you've moved into sports governance. As you say, I was a, an athlete rep all the way through for different at different levels. And I was asked to sit on the Athlete Commission at the British Olympic Association. So I, I kind of got a feel for a much broader bit, both of rowing and how other sports worked quite early on. That was that was quite lucky. And I'd been I think I'd been quite vocal um, as a as an athlete about the difference between the men's and the women's resource, the men's and the women's kind of results weren't that different, but the men were much better resourced than us. And when I retired, the then chairman of what was the Amateur Rowing Association and changed to British Rowing, tapped me on the shoulder and said, you know, now that you've, you've got nothing else better to do, can I suggest that we put some of that angst to good use? And I'd like you to chair the Women's Rowing Commission. And I said, no. Partly I didn't want to be sort of pigeonholed as somebody on gender stuff. Yeah. And partly I just didn't think I had the experience or the knowledge or whatever else to do it. And there were far more able, um, more experienced people than I was around at the time. And um, slightly by stealth, ended, I ended up chairing it for a few years. And actually, in the end, we dissolved it because we decided actually it wasn't the right thing to do at the time. Having If we had a Women's Rowing Commission, all the women's problems got stuck in the Women's Rowing Commission rather than actually them being sort of embedded across the organisation and across the sport. So I guess my, my parting gesture to that was <laughs> to dissolve the Women's Rowing Commission. But I then, I then, you know, from that position, ended up getting to know other commissions um, and became part of British Rowing Council. And then in 2002, Di asked me, would I put my name forward to be a vice chairman of British Rowing? which I sort of reluctantly sort of did again because I just thought, you know, I'd, I'd got three very small children at that stage. 
And she said, no, 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 it'll be fine. We'll work it out. We'll, we'll get you a role and you can do governance. And I then sort of had to learn what governance was because although I'd been part of the governance framework, I didn't really understand it. On sport governance, on, on general corporate governance and things. There was a lot of work to be done in sport back in those days. It sure was. I mean, it was really nice for me because that's when our paths started to cross again because I was a little bit involved in the margins. You you became involved in the British Paralympic movement, which is where I came across you. And um, some of the people listening to this podcast might not realise that the Paralympic movement is incredibly supported, not only by people who have a, a, a disability that might qualify them for Paralympic sport, but by able-bodied sports people as well who were really invested in how that, that area of sport succeeds. And you had such a, an impact there as well. You were kind of real figurehead for it, I felt. Well, I'm not sure about that. I mean, it, it was amazing. We, we became a, a Paralympic sport, I think in about 2005 or six is, is when rowing became. And, and therefore, rowing had to put forward somebody to be on the National Paralympic Committee. And Di, again, said to me, you know, you're an ex-athlete. What the Paralympic movement needs to do is to have more people talk about elite sport and less about disability. Yeah. So you need to learn to deal with disability, but to actually to take them seriously as elite athletes. So I want you to go and represent rowing on this. So I was probably the only Olympian involved in the British Paralympic Association at, at that sort of council level. And um, I remember going out in 2008 to watch the Beijing Paralympics, where our rowers obviously yeah. won two very amazing gold medals in that first, very first two finals. And I quite quickly became a board member and then went on to be deputy chairman of the British Paralympic Association. So, And brilliant timing to then get you engaged in the whole London 2012 planning and delivery and the kind of the exceptional success that that was. That was amazing, wasn't it? I mean, the Olympic Games in 2012 was fabulous, but being an insider yeah. on the Paralympic Games was even better. And I remember, I mean, you know, the various, we all have lots of memories about 2012. But I remember really telling people very, very confidently that, you know, they should have no doubt about buying tickets for the Paralympic Games. It's going to be fantastic and you're going to have a wonderful time. And then thinking afterwards, oh my God, I hope it really is as good as I'm making out. So you got involved in this movement, took this leadership role in, in the Paralympic movement, which in itself was really kind of growing internationally at a brilliant time because, of course, then London won the right to host the 2012 Games and you were on the inside track there. What was that like? Oh, it was amazing. It was an organisation that was in transformation, as you know, and uh, uh, and we, we were both part of that transformation. Coming out of the other side of it and into 2012 and some of the really difficult grown-up decisions that seemed at the time in, a, in an organisation that wasn't quite really ready for it. I remember distinctly the decision at, at the board around moving away from the BBC to televise the Paralympic Games to Channel 4 and splitting them out. And the BBC had done such an amazing job with, with Paralympic sport previously, but in hindsight, it was a fantastic decision and the right decision to do. And, and then just all, all of the sort of the team decisions as well around supporting the team and the, and the federations to be able to have the sorts of results that we needed to have to really make it a very special Games for, for the country. Which absolutely succeeded. I mean, it really was. And around the world, I know that other Paralympic movements look, looked on with envy about the way in which... That sort of whole, it, it just, it really did make a shift in society in, in, in this country about how people might have viewed any kind of disability as, as simply an opportunity to succeed differently rather than something to get in the way. 
It, it did. It, it made a huge difference. And I think particularly to the sort of younger generations coming through who no longer sort of really think about disability in the same way. But I'm not sure that we as a nation really took it on seriously enough. I still think there are a lot of areas that we could do, could do better at in terms of accessibility and, you know, openness for, for and, people I mean, with impairments. Really thing, isn't it? That sort of, I mean, sport has such a power to transform an individual experience, but also collectively it has the power to kind of effect transformation. But you have to kind of keep creating those events, the sort of the, uh, the catalyst to kind of revitalise that energy and, and keep it in the spotlight. It's really hard for somebody to sort of stand up and keep being a, a great sort of national advocate for things without those sort of landmark moments that everybody can coalesce around. And they have to sort of evolve as well. I mean, if you think back to those sort of original adverts for 2012 for the Paralympic Games, you know, that, that were about superheroes. And then we're now at that point where actually even those athletes are saying, we have to stop being superheroes. We are just ordinary people. And we need you to, when, when we take off our superhero suits, we need all people with impairments to be treated as superheroes as well, or treated as, as just as, as ordinary people. Mm. And that language has evolved. The way that we, we treat people is evolving. And the way that we're sort of more open and, and accessible in, in many ways. You said earlier that you disbanded the uh, Women's uh, Rowing Commission, but I know that you've actually been a, a, a wonderful sort of advocate and, and, and real uh, catalyst yourself for the progress of women in sport. In rowing, I mean, in rowing, you, particularly in Cambridge, you, you really helped to bring together the men's and the women's boat club. And, and now you chair the, the International Working Group on Women in Sport. What, what, what do you think our priorities should be? What are you trying to achieve through the kind of the next steps in all of that? You know, I, th I think we've spent such a long time. It's 50 years since Title IX in the US, which transformed US women's sport. Title IX was a very short bit of legislation that was passed in the US in 1972 that uh, required publicly funded institutions to spend the same amount of money on men and women across all things. But the most impact that it really had was in, was in sport. It really revitalised um, US women's sport. Just such a great example, isn't it? It was something simple and so powerful because yeah. it wasn't made over complicated. 37 just, just be fair. And yet here we are, we're still talking about needing equality in sport particularly and in resourcing of sport. Moving the boat race was incredible and it really proved the point that it wasn't a zero-sum game, that, you know, you can add value by having both races put together. Yeah. It, it added to... The attraction of the sponsorship, it added to the longevity of the sponsorship, it added broadcast time for the boat race and for the sponsor. So everything together was was really fantastic. But we've got to the point where we need to, I believe, we need to stop trying to fix the women and trying to help the women to sneak under barriers and fit into established protocols and established ways of working. And, and we need more male allies and we need men to be the ones to lead the change. And we need women to stop talking about women's issues to each other and actually to make it a sort of more national discussion um, that, that helps young boys and girls grow up together, respectful of each other in their physical activity and their sport. Um, because I, I, I do believe that, you know, what you learn through sport does transcend all the other parts of of life if you respect somebody for their physical ability or you respect them for their competitiveness or all sorts of things then you you begin to see them as individuals and not as a sort of second best always and not just in this country but particularly around other parts of the world women are still very much 
in every walk of life, not just in sport, are second best. Well, what next in addressing in addressing all of that? It's so inspiring to listen to you. I began at the start saying, would you talk about how sports transformed your life? But, but I think you've also been one of those people who's utterly given back to it as well in terms of its ability to transform other lives and to keep progressing, which is fabulous. Where would you like it to take you next? Well, I've got four years as the co-chair of the global exec of the IWG on women and sports and certainly have some ambitious plans to, to see what we can do both here um, in the UK. You know, what is our equivalent of Title IX that will transform access for girls and boys and transform the way that we think of equality in sport for the next 20 years? There must be something we can do. But also really to begin to open up that conversation globally in parts of the world that really are still very much on that journey and make people realise that we're not there yet. We still we still have, even in this country, despite the success of the Lionesses in the Euros, despite the coverage that we get for our women's cricket, we're still a huge way off. They are the exception rather than the rules still, yes. aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And, and we saw through the pandemic that as soon as resources become slightly restricted or time becomes slightly restricted, the first thing to go is mum's time going to the gym doing physical activity you know the first expenditure that will go will be the women's expenditure on themselves um and and on their recreational enjoyment or whatever so and and their access to sport so it's still very very fragile and uh you know there's a lot of work to do here as well as um globally and in in this extraordinary career that you've had has there been a woman who's particularly inspired you or I encouraged you. Who would you sort of pick out? We know coaches are always good, but I was only ever coached by men. Uh, Mum, my grandmother, both were quite inspiring. I mean, my mum never stopped her journey of learning. She still goes to the gym every day in her late 70s, so can't help but be inspired by that. But there's probably two women that I would pick out from outside of family. One is Dame Di Ellis, who was my predecessor at British Rowing. She was chairman for 24 years and I was astounded when I was elected after her that the sport would choose another woman for a start. Having done 24 years of a female leader to then have another five for me was incredible. And she was a a little like the late Queen Elizabeth. You know, she was extraordinarily diplomatic, canny, wise, um, always had the right thing to say and always had a bit of a twinkle in her eye. So she was brilliant. And the other person from the art world who I met probably in the very late 1990s was a lady called Elspeth Uda, who had been a photographer and trained with Lucia Moholy from the Bauhaus. And um, Elspeth was born in 1911. She was in her late 80s, early 90s when I first met her. And she went on to live to 104. And she was just this most incredible lady that had lived this, this amazing life. She was born in Germany. She was Jewish. She escaped with her husband with two suitcases and a violin in 1933 and set up a whole new life as a photographer, as an artist, working and things. And I met her through some research I was doing in the art world and she became an incredibly close friend and and just amazing role model, really. Lovely lady. Sounds wonderful. We're, We're all reflecting on this sense of inspirational women because, as you can tell if you're listening to this podcast, sometime after we record it, we are in the midst of the period of national mourning for for the the late Queen. So it's very much in our minds about how the inspiration she was to so many people and this whole sense of how you 
encourage and galvanise others. And I wonder, Anne-Marie, what would you say to our students here at St John's today to inspire them to make the most, both of their time here in the way that you did, but also of the doors that Cambridge can open for them? Cambridge is just the most amazing place with so much opportunity. And you can go through it with your head stuck in a book or you can go through it learning from everything that you do and from every experience that you can have. And, and I would encourage people to go out and search out those experiences because they are what make us as we get older. And the older I get, the more I appreciate not just the pattern on old furniture and on old objects, but actually the sort of pattern that people bring to the story of your life and and to their lives. They're, they're, we're all made up of layers and layers of experiences, things that go right and things that go wrong. And those are the things that make the world better, being able to use those experiences. Good advice. You know, it's a great pleasure for us to have you as an honorary fellow. We feel so proud of that. I wonder, in sort of finishing off this conversation, what does St John's mean to you today? Oh, it's sort of home. It's not quite home, but it is home. And it's somewhere that I really believe I'll always be able to come back to. I get a huge sense of kind of pride in the college, particularly when I read about the amazing things that it's doing, how it's moved on, how much more inclusive it is. And yet you come back and it's still very much St John's and it's, it's still my college. And the network of people that I've met both from here and kept in touch with, that I've met subsequently that have touched my lives. We talked earlier about Richard Perham, who was here as a professor when I was here, but who then I went on to know through schools and school governors. Um, and, you know, it, we, we cross over with so many of these things. And it's just a very special, very special place. Anne-Marie, thank you very much for sharing those observations and thoughts about your, your life and career with us. It's been a real pleasure for us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Suvion. Suvion is taken from Souvent me Suvion, the medieval French motto of our founder, Lady Margaret Beaufort, the matriarch of the Tudor dynasty. Souvent me Suvion is usually translated as I often remember or remember me often. That's why when visiting St. John's, you'll see blue forget-me-not flowers in the decorations surrounding the college's arms. Lady Margaret's own story of political brilliance, self-preservation and personal influence is one we remember often. For more on life at St John's College and the University of Cambridge, visit joh.cam.ac.uk or follow us on social media. Music